The Climate Papers, the COP26 Universities Network podcast. Hello and welcome to this edition of The Climate Papers with me, Amanda Carpenter, and me, Elisa Gilbert, uh, the Director of Policy and Translation at the Grant Space Institute, Imperial College. Elisa, great to see you. As we head ever closer to COP26 in Glasgow, our podcasts are diving even deeper into some of the key issues that will shape and inform the discussions, both in those main negotiations and across all of the fringe events that are happening in the city. And I think today is no exception, is it, Elisa? No, it's getting busier and busier. And uh, this is a topic that's really, really relevant to the discussions that will take place internationally and also locally and nationally. And we're really trying to explore climate change, mitigation and adaptation, but with a focus on co-benefits that actions and policies in relation to reducing climate impact will have. And to help us to do this, we have two expert guests, Sebastian Chastin, who's Professor of Health, Behaviour, Dynamics, People, Places and Systems at Glasgow Caledonian University. That is a bit of a mouthful, but Sebastian, welcome. Really good to see you. Yes, thank you very much for inviting me. It's a delight to be here. And our second guest is Laura Diaz-Anadon, who's Professor of Climate Change Policy at the University of Cambridge and Director of the Cambridge Centre for Environment, Energy and the Natural Resource Governance. But she's actually joining us from the other Cambridge because she's currently in the States. So Laura, really lovely to see you and thanks for being here. Hey, thank you for having me, Amanda. Great, lovely to see you. So I suppose we should start with some definitions and maybe I could ask you, Sebastian, because we know that we need to take drastic actions to act on climate change. And this probably puts a pressure, I think, on both communities and societies and, and institutions around the globe. So how is it that some of those mitigation adaptation actions can bring benefits? And what do we mean when we're talking about co-benefits? Well, there, there's no doubt that we have to take drastic and, and, and urgent actions. And these are going to have tremendous disruptions uh, to our societal structures, systems, to our daily lives, to our community living. But we can actually take this, also view it as an opportunity to, uh, to better our lives in, in many, many ways. So what we mean by co-benefit is that if we plan carefully, some of the uh, climate mitigation and adaptation action or policy, we can actually derive from them some real benefit for our welfare, for our health, for our economy, uh, for uh, the planet more generally, and also maybe engage some feedback loops that actually allow us to then have further um, benefits for the climate. So it's actually this idea of co-benefits is, is tremendous because it gives us a really positive uh, slant on, on, a, on a story that is generally quite frightening and negative. But it, it will maybe help us actually galvanize some, uh, some, some more actions and some more will for action and, and get more political buy-in into climate actions because we can bring in more actors if suddenly the climate actions can also have a, a, an impact, a positive impact on my health, then the health system should be acting toward better climate, uh, for example. Can you give me an example of, of how that would happen? Because I suppose most of us think about climate change 
actions as in very often being kind of in the negative. I mean, the sense of, of doing less or reducing something or pushing changes in behavior that aren't always don't always seem to be the things that people want to do. So how can a, a climate change mitigation adaptation action have a positive benefit on health, for example? Well, I think one of the, 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 the simplest example, we have to reduce emissions. That's that's clear. Emissions have tremendous uh, impact on a chronic respiratory disease. We've seen an exponential rise in them. And I'm, I'm frightened for my own children to develop asthma in a really, really early age. And it's a very likely scenario. And this is entirely due to the emissions we have. So if we reduce the emissions, we'll reduce the chances, the risk that our, ourselves and our children and our, uh, the children of our children will, will be born with chronic respiratory problems that are one of the leading causes of, of death on the planet. So th this is a very simple example. And if we do reduce emissions, that means also that we have to force people maybe to use less cars and be more active. That has an impact on our cardiovascular health. So, so you see that this, these are additive, um, additive uh, benefits we can gain, but that means transforming the healthcare system. That means we have a healthcare system that works entirely on a curative model. So another example would be uh, mental health, for example. So we have people with mental health issues. So what do we do? We cure that by giving them uh, drugs. And these drugs have an impact on the climate. They, they cost carbon to produce, to deliver, to give to the patient their hard pollutions to the water system. But if we were on a more preventative system where we actually reduced, for example, car use and we change society in such a way that people are less stressed and they do more physical activity. Therefore, we are going to reduce the, the, the prevalence of mental health issues. And therefore, we reduce the amount of drug we need to produce. And therefore, we reduce the amount of CO2 we emit. We decarbonize the, our healthcare system. So that's the, that's the reverse of the, of the feedback loop. And we have some good models for that. Social prescribing, for example, where we can ask people to go and be closer to nature uh, for their mental health is a good way of doing this. We've known for a long time that prevention is better than cure. Maybe this climate issue is a time to actually enact this. So we've got this kind of positive cycle of reinforcement, really, haven't we, in that behaviours that are designed to reduce greenhouse gases, for example, can in fact improve the quality of people's lives, both physically and mentally. And I could see how that's a really simple thing to sell in if you're convinced in the first place that, you know, you need to do that. I see there might be more problems if you're perhaps coming up against an economic argument that says that, that there, there are costs to some of those things. Laura, I think you wanted to chip in. So I, I wanted to talk a little bit about this interface in the economic costs of, um, of climate change trying to estimate what the cost of materials of the Paris Agreement might be, and also what the benefits might be in terms of uh, life saved uh, from climate change mitigation when we compare a business as usual scenario of the current policies versus a set of policies that would get us closer or that would um, allow us to meet the Paris Agreement. And yes, there are different uh, estimates, but all estimates that I've seen so far uh, indicate that just the health co-benefits are greater, in fact, around two times greater than the cost of climate change education, at least in the 2020 to 2050 
uh, time frame. So uh, uh, um, an article that came out in The Lancet a couple of years ago estimated that comparing the number of deaths through you know, air pollution, indoor and outdoor air pollution, um, and their business as usual scenario with a scenario that uh, met the goals of the Paris Agreement uh, between 2020 and 2030 would save about uh, 30 million deaths. And when we convert these estimates into monetary values using uh, estimates for the value of statistical life, uh, these uh, you know, 30 uh, million deaths, deaths would be around 60 to 70 trillion dollars during this 30-year time period between 2020 and 2050. And again, kind of rough estimate is that this benefit in terms of the life state is at least twice that of the cost of meeting climate efforts. Again, there are a lot of, you know, uh, things that this doesn't include, uh, but just to give you a sense of the, that it's just one of the many co-benefits that we can reap from climate change mitigation would be greater than the costs. I mean, it's interesting because you've both spoken about co-benefits um, at a, from a different perspective, right? So those figures you just gave us, Laura, are really global and big. Um, they're impactful because they're large and they show us the scale of co-benefits but also hard to grasp at a personal level. Um, and then what you were talking about, uh, Sebastian, kind of makes it really personal. You mentioned your own children and, and bringing together climate action with health. Um, can you tell us a bit about, you know, things in between? So that, that example Sebastian gave us was really, you know, my own actions, my own family, those, that kind of level of co-benefits. And what you told us was really big and global and additive. What about those things in between? How many co-benefits are things that might not relate to me, but also be a bit more tangible. I, I'll just give you uh, one. I think um, when we think about what co-benefits or, or what uh, additional benefits from climate change mitigation people value, there's also been a lot of research about this. And some people care about economic opportunities and jobs, people care about biodiversity, their national trust you know, uh, next to them. Uh, some people care about, again, their own health. People are making decisions about where to live and how to move to reduce the impact on, on their children, as Sebastian said. And just saying with the first kind of area, we do know that there's a lot of research indicating that when people think that particular climate actions such as uh, clean electricity standards or feeding tariffs for renewables or uh, other incentives or, or carbon prices, when they think that this is going to result in local local jobs, uh, local industries, benefits, they're more likely to support climate action. So I guess this comes, uh, it's in between in the sense that these are people who don't necessarily think that the jobs are going to come to them, that they're going to get one of these jobs, but they might see that they will benefit their community, their town, that they'll be able to preserve their way of living. Just again, to give you another global figure that again translates into more concentrated jobs in different places. And we know that there are around 11.5 million jobs globally in the uh, renewable energy sector. Of course, these 11.5 million jobs then uh, have spillover effects to their communities and create uh, capabilities, skills, that can lead to the uh, to innovation and the development of new industries. So, so this area of economic opportunity, jobs and development is one uh, where we've seen um, there's a lot of interest, both from governments and from people. Yeah, uh, if, I, if I may, there are other benefits that are more distant to us. For example, we know that climate change is going to impact our ability to, to grow food and supply food. And that is entirely dependent, uh, in a sense, on the uh, 
the biodiversity of our ecosystem. So if, if we actually are doing climate actions that improve biodiversity uh, through uh, reducing emissions, then will also impact on our ability to have food on our plates. And that might be a distance. And that's one of the issues with um, the co-benefits is that they're often very distant uh, in time. So there's a little bit of a lag, if you want, often in a way that we can, we're gonna experience these this co-benefits. While the, uh, the impact will be felt by the population and the industry in a, ver in a very immediate way where when a policy comes in, you have to act on it. But we need to have that trust in the, that these benefits are coming in a very near future. I mean, all the studies show that the benefits accumulate over time. And you can feel the first few it, within, the, within a few years or a bit less, but it takes a while for them to actually, um, actually develop. One of the uh, other benefits that might be not apparent immediately is, is structural is that we've seen that all the, um, the communities or the, the municipalities or the regions that have engaged with the co-benefit models, they've had to work in synergies a lot more. That means they had to work in a more integrated way. And it forced them to actually do that rather than working on silos through sectoral um, kind of arbitrary div divisions. And we've seen that uh, through the example of air pollution that, 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 that takes in multiple sectors you know, the transport sector, the health sectors, the industry, everything. And in these regions or these communities and municipalities where they have actually brought these silos down and worked in a more integrated way, services are better. And the, these, there's better communication, there's better um, governance uh, because it's more fluid, it's more integrated. So in the long run, that will benefit our, our, um, our society altogether. And finally, I think, one of the crucial things for me, and it might not be in the paper as it, as it is, but if we think about the co-benefits as a really uh, way to use climate change as an opportunity to better our lives and the way we live, it also protects us in a way against the worst case scenario or near the worst case scenario. There is a, there is a, a distinct chance that we're going for uh, some form of collapsing scenario. So if we are actually able to work in a synergistic way, very much like uh, pa Paolo, Pablo Servin talks about, then we might be able to organize uh, a parachute for that collapse in such a way that we go down, but not in such a way that we, we, we crash entirely. That's interesting to hear, you know, those ideas about how we can use better types of decision making to link up those distant assessments of benefits. So I guess we do need to ask the question, not everything that happens when you take a climate action is a benefit. So not everything is a co-benefit. There are obviously other impacts. And I've heard these referred to sometimes as co-impacts. Can, can you both explore those a little bit, what they are and, and how we measure those? So there are different names. So co-impacts or negative impacts or trade-offs. There's a, a lot of work on this. And as you say, if climate mitigation policies, as Sebastian was indicating, are not designed trying to foresee or anticipate uh, negative effects or side effects, uh, they can, in some cases, uh, lead to negative impacts. Uh, we've done quite a lot of work looking at negative distributional impacts of policies to decarbonize the energy sector. Uh, we did a systematic literature review and we looked at, at 10 different um, decarbonization policy instruments. So we looked at things like feed-in tariffs, carbon taxes, renewable portfolio standards, 
procurement, you know, uh, building codes uh, and things like this. And what we found when you look at the policy evaluation literature, when you look at the impacts on vulnerable groups or small firms, you see that they often, not always, often to date, had some negative impact on these groups. So to give you a couple of examples, and again, we're seeing it today uh, with some of the high energy prices in Spain, for example, there, yes, it's partly that gas prices are very high coming from Russia, but it's also CO2 prices and also the way we design the electricity sector. So we're seeing that, of course, when you have high uh, electricity prices, uh, it's the most vulnerable or the lowest income consumers that end up spending a greater fraction of their budget, of their income on energy. So we've seen that this has been quite prevalent. Again, not always. And, and we have seen many cases in which policies were designed to avoid these negative trade-offs. But this is one big area. We need to design policies to make sure that those that are least able to afford it, they don't end up bearing the burden of this. So we need to avoid regressive policies in the economic language. And the other big area where we saw there were frequent negative impacts were for small firms. So the way in which some renewable energy auctions have been designed around the world, the way in which things like investment tax credits uh, in the US for renewable energy developers, it made it very difficult for small firms to participate. So again, this means that depending on how you design this, there can be winners and losers, and there are solutions for this, such as uh, you know designing specific segments of the tax credit or of the auctions to engage small firms, or actually to simplify the process and to reduce the burden on small firms. So we do see that these negative distributional impacts can happen. Again, these were short term, you know, in the long run, all research points to there being positive. Uh, you know, economic benefits from a managed transition to net zero, but without paying attention to policy design and a just transition, uh, we can have at least, uh, you know, short-term negative effects on, on vulnerable groups or, or, or firms that just have less ability to adapt. Yeah, I'm interested that a lot of our conversation has revolved around what feels like the sophisticated developed economies. And, and I'm wondering if perhaps is this a subject area that we can look at those other less developed countries and, and small island states and things who, as we know, are right on the forefront of the impacts of climate change. I mean, are there co-benefits or are there models that can allow co-benefits that actually work within those communities as well? Or is this very much around a kind of advanced, westernized, well-funded approach to tackling some of the climate change issues? I mean, I would imagine maybe, Sebastian, are there particularly perhaps looking at health and health dynamics? Is that is that the case? That's not necessarily the case, actually, with, with health in that respect. Um, I think uh, in the paper we talked about economic issues uh, based on Nora's research, actually. So I'm probably going to let her talk about this uh, a lot more. In, in low and middle income countries, uh, the, the cabinet benefits model is, is not that evident at the moment in, in terms of health anyway. Well, I suppose but I was thinking things, things like the, the, the kind of fam famous thing that everybody talks about when they talk about offsetting, which is the cook stove thing. You know, we improve the quality of, of access from developing communities to waste yeah, I mean, and that you, you, develops less pollution and stuff. It doesn't feel like this model translates across all countries no, and all communities. It's very much no, a kind of financially developed model. No, it doesn't. I mean, the cook stove model is a good example. Uh, I mean, it resonates with other models like around, you know, electric vehicles in developed countries. They have benefits, but they also have negative impacts that often could actually, through some negative feedback group, actually increase our carbon uh, and our pollution. So they're not incredibly good models in that respect. 
But Laura had some really good models in, in low and middle income country, in, in terms of at least in terms of economic development. So on the on the health side, we do see that some of the avoided deaths are for some of the emerging economies. So India and China, because they have a lot of industrialization, a lot of local air pollution, we do have that. But as Sebastian said, when we talk about developing countries, they generally have less, let's say, avoided deaths from replacing fossil fuel power and fossil fuel vehicles to low carbon versions. There is some research looking at the extent to which financing the deployment of things like renewable technologies in those countries can help economic development. And we did some work in Synergy where we looked at some of the international finance going into Uganda to lower the cost of capital for deploying renewable energy and we saw that with international finance, so again, this goes back to Sebastian's point about the resources, you can actually reap not just cheaper renewables. So over three years, the cost of capital went down. So then other international investors came in because it became more attractive because the, you know, the risks were lower and the returns were greater. And at the same time, as some of these capacity went in, they also improved the reliability of their power sector and their coverage. So say they reduce power outages and there's still research that shows that when you reduce power outages, increase productivity. So, so we do see some research showing that with, again, international finance and well-developed policy, you can begin to reap some, again, productivity benefits uh, and, and investors. What we're seeing less of, for example, is you know, the ability to develop domestic high-tech manufacturing industries, which is something that a lot of people have in mind. Again, economic development and economic benefits is not just being a world manufacturer, producer of solar panels. You know, here we have you know, China already. Uh, you know, it's going to be hard to, at least with the current technology, to have somebody that can compete with China. But there are on other benefits with you know, international help. And this is where, for example, the COP26 meeting in Glasgow is going to be very important because because even though in Paris, industrialist countries committed to investing $100 billion a year in climate finance, uh, as of 2019, which is the latest data point we have available, they had only committed $80 billion. And we do see from all of this work that they will need the, the, the finance to, you know, to, uh, to mitigate. And it's only fair, you know, we've been in industrialist countries, we've been a meeting for so long, we've eaten you know, nine-tenths of the pie, or, you know, I, I, that's not the, quite the right number, but, but this becomes really very important so that it's possible for them to make some of these investments. I was just thinking of another another area where I often hear people talk about co-benefits that we haven't explored, which is the co-benefits to nature and biodiversity. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's an area where I wonder, again, if we if we look around the world at different types of countries, I've often heard people talk about good types of either avoided deforestation or afforestation both being a way to mitigate climate change, to also help us adapt to and manage the impacts of climate change, and also offering biodiversity gains. And I wonder whether either of you have, have some thoughts on that area. Well, there's, there's some clear evidence that works. Some programs like REDD Plus have, have worked. I mean, they, they, they are good evidence that they have positive impacts in multiple domains, not just in terms of the biodiversity. Uh, they are actually managing uh, to recover some soil productivity and these kind of things, which help in the food chain as well. Yeah, there is good evidence that this kind of reforestation or, or avoiding the environmental degradation actually do work. Now, the, the actual bringing the potential for carbon storage to a point, and that's then where the problem lies, is that if we store that carbon, you know, what happens when we, it, it is distorted? either voluntarily or involuntarily. So they're great and they need to be part of the, of the answer, but they're not, 
the panacea either. Mm. May I jump on this? I, I think that this is a very important area. There's also research that shows that when you try to monetize, again, this is a very controversial area, but when you try to monetize the ecosystem services from uh, a lot of these areas, they are also very significant. And, and again, when we think about value in nature, it's always a lower bound estimate because there's always intrinsic values of nature as well. Right? Even from a monetary perspective, there's a lot of potential in this. So I, I do think another key point for you know the COP as well as national government plans, you know, I would actually put the priority on putting in place steps to stop the loss and degradation of carbon and biodiversity rich ecosystems in you know both the land, the oceans. So there's particular ecosystems that store carbon, you know, better, you know, land, mangroves, top forests, and these sort of things. And this is really important because, if they, you know, these will become additional, you know, emissions. I do think that on the new forest, again, as, as Sebastian was saying, it needs to be done well because we do have a lot of issues when we think about afforestation projects in terms of the permanence of those forests, in terms of the additionality of those forests. So, you know, we want to make sure that when you plant a forest, it doesn't mean that when you, you know, release, you know, more emissions from somewhere else. And in terms of the leaches, so if you plant a forest somewhere, you know, somewhere, then a carbon intensive alternative or a, a you know land use chase happens somewhere else. So so this is an area where I think after Arthur's review on um biodiversity, it's you know just very hard to argue that society can thrive without valuing our ecosystems. We're you know part of nature. And this has a very important role. I wanted to ask you, Sebastian, something because your field of expertise is, is around kind of behavior dynamics and people in place and systems. What tools or levers do you think we have to kind of influence policymakers to put in place these policies and in turn influence the institutions or the organisations to change, because that is part of the great problem, isn't it? We actually want people to do things differently to tackle climate change and, you know, whether it's adaption or mitigation, we, we need people to take action. So what kind of, of levers have we got to make that happen? Um, I mean, outside of political levers, we don't have many. Um, the uh, you, you are trying to turn me into a politician here, um, essentially. Not at all, not at all. <laughs> yeah, but, I mean, we, we've, known, we've known for a long time about the evidence around climate change and has not really changed very much. Um, we know that the urgency is here and I don't see much urgency um, happening. All we can do is campaign. Uh, and, you know, there are more and more bottom-up uh, kind of campaigns happening, movements. People are realising the young generations are absolutely admirable. And I have a lot of respect for them, the way they have actually taken this to heart and telling us, you've got to do something about this. I mean, political pressure from the ground up is really important. From a scientific point of view, we can only keep on providing the evidence, but we can also provide some tools. So I think when we talk about co-benefits and the complexity of, of all these issues, and uh, in a way, we have to grasp that complexity and sometimes challenges some of the models uh, around which um, our politicians or policymakers actually make decisions. So, uh, and, and Laura can comment on that, I'd be interested. But in a way, we know that our emissions are entirely linked to the GDP, right? We, we know that. It's a, there's a perfect linear relationship with these two things. So, you know, it, it's a bit pointless to try to continue thinking about decoupling about this, these things and this idea that we will be able to continue growing forever. Uh, what we know is just not going to happen without, without impacting the climate so negatively forever. So we have to then, you know, challenge these ideas, provide new ideas. And there are 
some that we, we put in, in the paper around, you know, the, the donut economy, but there are other models around that, uh, around degrowth and other things, uh, or even managing the collapse, that kind of thing. But, you know, just challenging these, these base assumptions. We've lived in a world that is based on some crazy, crazy, crazy assumption um, around economics. There's infinite growth. We, we might be making some more mistakes when we think about models in which we can uh, be sustainable when we know the planet does not have the capacity to regenerate itself as quickly as we would like it to do. So we can, we can provide them with some tools, some new models, and we can provide them with very simple ways of looking at the system, so looking at this in a different way. You know, it's not a simple thing. It's a, actually a complex thing. So grasp that complexity, invest in understanding uh, how systems work together. You have to sit down break down silos, again, break down silos between sectors and start to understand how you're all influencing each other and work together rather than against each other or doing something that is so isolated that it has negative feedback impact that we you've not even thought about. So for, from a scientific moment of view, that's all I can do. On this uh, point about providing tools to help better represent the complexity and the linkages and the dynamics of the climate problem, but also of our economy, our, our system, there's actually, as Sebastian was hitting, there is work trying to better represent actually the benefits of the development of new industries, spillovers to other sectors, you know, better incorporation of some of the, you know, the health benefits of systems and all of this. And what this involves is, again, a, a better representation of the fact that, you know, we need a transition to a new energy system. And if the most widely used models, cost-benefit analysis used for policy making, don't capture the possibility that you will have these new industries, new sectors, then we're not going to be making the right decisions. But there is work on this, including a, a big project that I'm part of uh, at Oxford, at UCL, and actually in China, India, Brazil, where we're trying to come up with uh, better support tools for the economic side of this. I, I did want to mention one, you know, we're not silver lining, uh, you know, we're way, of course, in terms of the emissions trajectory, of course. So, I, you know, I'm not suggesting this, but we have had some positive and unexpected surprises related to how quickly the cost of different energy technologies have come down. Actually, I've done a lot of work trying to see what, you know, what extrapolations from current, from historical data would give us what experts thought the cost of renewable energy technologies and solid state lighting and lithium ion batteries and electrolyzers were going to be. And all these methods for trying to forecast technological change actually underestimated the rate of innovation. You know, models were better than experts. And what we are attributing this to is actually the swath of policies, uh, market pool policies, trying to pull technologies that weren't yet competitive into the marketplace uh, to go in. So we've had some positive surprises. And um, we also have a few European countries where consumption-based greenhouse gas emissions have actually come down. This is, uh, you know, um, again, consumption-based, not production-based. But, but we do need to make different decisions if we are going to really meet the goals of the Paris Agreement. There's no doubt about this. But we can use some of the lessons we've learned from the policies that, um, you know, many countries have put in place to date. I mean, I'm struck when you're both talking about tools and decisions by this idea of who is making those decisions. Sebastian spoke before about joining up and breaking down silos, but often people making some of these decisions are actually at a very local level. They might be using a tool, like you mentioned, Lara, cost-benefit analysis. So looking at maybe how much it costs and what they think the benefit of the change they're making is. But quite often, they may have just been given a budget, an amount of time to spend it, 
and a very narrow range of things upon which they can spend this budget. Um, mm -hmm. And those people may be in a transport department or a health department or maybe an environment department, but probably not, unfortunately, unlike what you suggested, Sebastian, all three or even just two of those. So, you know, what kind of practical tips can you give to many of the people who are decision makers really at the front end of this, who, who won't be looking for this higher level economic stuff or have access even to the simplest of, of uh, systems thinking diagram or tool? Well, I, I think the first thing, uh, picking up on what Laura said, is a question of value systems as well. You know, so that decision is made on value and often that value is based on money. Um, and the, the advantage of the co-benefit system is that it gives a different frame for, for values. So now in terms of pragmatically, and people have done it, they've done it in Amsterdam, they've done it in some parts of Canada, where actually they have restructured their municipalities in such a way that these decision makers with a little budget are not working in isolation anymore. So my pragmatic uh, advice would be, okay, let's think about that problem for a minute. Let's sit down and say, who, who should be working with me here? with my budget. And I know, I understand I have a budget, I have a remit, but then I have to uh, make the, the very clear decision that I cannot make that decision on my own, that I'm gonna need other people to come on board with me and, and, and talk through the solution with me uh, and co-create it. Essentially, that, that's where it is. So that's the pragmatic, it's just for everybody to just come out of the silo a little bit themselves. I would just add one thing to this, which is, you know, actually, Alice, I thought you were going to go to how people can make decisions, right? I thought that's what you were going to say. Of course, you know, this is why government action is so important because often people don't have information about the carbon footprint of things they want to buy, or it would be complicated to do, you know, a return on investment analysis. So, you know, leaving people aside, which again, have an important role to play, but they need to be enabled by information, by, you know, governments, firms, and so forth. When we think about what the kind of more isolated policymakers in different departments might do, again, you know, consultation uh, as uh, you know to help understand where the context, what are the issues, what might be negative, you know, benefits or trade-offs, and what actually might be for different regions the benefits. So in some areas, you know, it might not be that difficult to identify. Well, we have coal power plants and you know, cement plants and a lot of cars we reduce emissions, there's likely to be a health, you know, co-benefits, you know, even without doing a very complicated value of statistical life calculation. And similarly, when you think about, well, are, is my region or this area likely to benefit in terms of new jobs or new industry? There are things that we've learned from the analysis of industrial structure, where we see that if you have related industries, manufacturing industries, for example, you're more likely to develop domestic capabilities and, and, and jobs in one area. So there are kind of few things where you don't need to do a very complex model to identify where some of these co-benefits are more likely to occur. Similarly, you know, you know, when we talk about a rainforest or, or something like this. So I think identifying these co-benefits and what people in the region care about are something that, you know, again, it's not a, a zero, you know, amount of work, but it's something that that is doable. But it also means that it's really important to invest in the capabilities of policymakers in all, all of these spaces. I hear there's people asking for those things. I think right now there's not real opportunity, right? Because we hear people at all levels of government yeah. interested in 
in hearing these kind of ideas and concepts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that call for collaboration and that kind of cross-sector working, cross-silo working that you put out so clearly, Sebastian, is, is absolutely the right mood in which we should be, you know, looking at the, the climate conference and COP and the outcomes from COP, but also spilling out into the wider communities because this responsibility goes beyond just policymakers and politicians, doesn't it? We need to ask all of our institutions and organisations to step up and rise up to the challenge. So, you know, we can't rely just on the policy makers and the politicians so uh, so I think that's an, an, an excellent point we probably should draw our conversation to a close but collaboration and thinking outside of your silo if I can coin a new term is exactly what we need and perhaps what we should be calling for at COP and beyond a huge thank you to to you both for joining us to Laura and to Sebastian thank you for being part of the podcast it's absolutely fascinating thank you again for having me thank you and and to you Alicia for for co-hosting I thanks Amanda And we have a really exciting time coming up because we're actually going to be at COP for the duration of the conference and we'll be bringing you a daily podcast as part of this Climate Papers series, just looking at voices from across the conference, checking in on how the negotiations are going and getting some reality checks from academics and policymakers and members of the public and NGOs and a host of other people. So it's going to be a very exciting time. So don't forget to subscribe to the Climate Papers wherever you get your podcast or visit the COP26 University's website to catch up on other episodes or download the briefing papers. So thank you again to our guests and thanks for listening and goodbye. The Climate Papers is brought to you by Planet Pod Productions and sponsored by the Grantham Institute at Imperial College London. 